Hey, teachers. Um, so this episode I'm about to engage in started uh, forming while I was in a great meeting discussing equity and e-learning, uh, which was moments after our governor mentioned the likelihood of or um, rather to start preparing for e-learning in the fall. This, among a few other recent experiences, uh, has inspired me to do an impromptu podcast episode. I'm going to talk about what I've heard and read from others, share my own experiences and solutions, go into an exemplar e-learning unit that was created with a really awesome work group of excellent educators from across the state, dive into some socio-emotional learning, and look to the future. Also, side note, I totally recorded half of this episode when I realized that my mic wasn't on. So... Uh, keep that in mind as I go forward. Um, so obviously, it would be an understatement to suggest that this is a pivotal point in our history uh, that goes for education especially. I'm lucky enough to have been a part of a lot of conversations regarding e-learning, some of which have involved frustration and others that were focused on the future with hopeful aspirations. I've been listening to a variety of teacher and student voices across a variety of platforms over the past month plus. Uh, One of the major personal benefits of the work that I do with the Illinois High School Art Exhibition and also the Illinois uh, Art Education Association is that I get to connect with teachers across the state uh, and from a variety of demographics, and I get to do it often. Um, I've heard from a lot of angry teachers and also angry students, uh, mostly seniors, who are missing out on all their senior experiences and their anger is totally justified. Um, I'll share a little bit about that in a bit. I've also heard from and been a part of conversations with inspired teachers who are trying to problem solve and with some innovative ideas. The angry, te- angry teachers are, are also justifiably uh, exhausted They're putting in a ton of hours into an extremely unprepared e-learning system, creating in many cases step-by-step curriculum instructions to try and make them foolproof. Then maybe 20% of their students are actually engaging in it at all, and a smaller percentage are actually completing the lessons anywhere near expectations. They're juggling the same issues at home as everyone else on top of it. Maybe like me, they're taking care of their own kids, maybe others' kids, uh, developing curriculum for them on a daily basis, trying to occupy them while they can't play with their friends, or struggling with e-learning from the other side as their kids try to engage with it. Let me uh, also just note that um, being home with my kids more is probably the best result of this quarantine situation. I am really trying to uh, absorb as much of it as possible. What hopeful teachers are thinking, which is where I find myself, they see this as an opportunity for tremendous growth. They see the challenges ahead as an opportunity for innovative problem solving. They see this time as highlighting historical and systemic issues in our education systems, which I'll expand on in much greater detail throughout this episode. But really, this is a tremendous opportunity for growth. I I hope that the right people are being heard as school districts across the country problem solve. Teachers are rightfully seeing the glaring issues that have infected education for a century on display in intimate ways. It points to specific reforms that can innovate and enhance the educational experiences of our students and teachers forever, paving the way for the educational renaissance that many of us have been waiting for. If you have listened to any other uh, episodes of this podcast or watched my TEDx talk, then you know what I'm talking about. 
By the way, if you haven't checked out my TEDx talk, go to YouTube, type in how creativity can save schools, watch it, and then share it so that more people watch it and it gets shared more, yada, 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 right? Make it go viral. What I'm what I'm terrified about right now, other than the obvious like impending like depression, economy, all these other issues, a uh, second wave of COVID, um, is that we will not use this as an opportunity to benefit education and humanity. There are so many things that we can change about our systems that we're so overdue for it. I'm nervous that the angry teachers who are likely to be louder will be heard too much. This could send us backwards, and I just don't think that we can handle that anymore. I don't think we can really take the old status quo for much longer. So many of us have felt the tipping point was coming for a long time. But let's also clarify, it is extremely important to note that this is not anywhere near a normal situation. We are really in an unprecedented time. I think far too many teachers are using their experiences as a comparison for what e-learning would look like in any normal circumstance, and this is just not the case. Without the need for social isolation, without a failing economy, fear and anxiety, the uprooting of everyone's regular patterns of behavior, and access to a lot of the things that they love in their lives, and so much more, well, I think you get the point. Do not use these experiences as a way to gauge what e-learning can be. This is extenuating circumstances. I do think this is a wonderful time to reflect, slow down, take inv inventory of the gifts in your life, and listen. There's so much more time to listen right now, which is my second favorite result of this mess. Time to listen. I was so busy running around, putting together art shows, trying to make podcasts, build a website, yada, 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 be with my kids, feel like I was still being a good husband. Now I have time to just kind of sit a little bit sometimes. What are some of the reasons that this isn't working out? What is working? How much of the problem comes from historical and systemic issues that have been plaguing education for a long time? Have you noticed the timestamps of when students are submitting their work? What times are they actually tuning in for Zoom meetings? What motivates them? Rightfully so, the Illinois School Board of Education has said nothing students do or don't do can impact their grades negatively right now. Grades were the number one motivator for student engagement in the past. Something that I obviously think is not ideal, but what do we expect when that number one motivator is removed from the equation for students? Again, I think there's good reason as to why uh, the Illinois School Board did this or other school boards have done this across the country because of what students are dealing with, right? I mean, what are students dealing with? And maybe even more important is what are they missing? I was actually in a Zoom meeting with my advanced students, uh, my advanced photo students doing a critique when the news came in that the school building would remain closed for the rest of the school year. I had about 15, minute, uh, 15 students in this meeting and a number of them were seniors. Uh, the gravity for those students of missing out on prom and those final senior weeks, those great weeks where they get to just kind of like run around, have fun, share with their friends, you know, clean out their lockers, uh, the process of saying goodbye to some really important people in their lives, as well as having a normal graduation, and a number of other losses just hit home for some of the students in that moment. Even though they knew it was coming, it just hit home at that time. Consider that they are also likely losing uh, anything relating to a normal college beginning, which is something I'm not sure they were recognizing. 
being a member of the Xenial generation in which 9-11 happened in my junior year of college and I graduated into a recession with tons of student debt, saw too many of my friends shipped off to a never-ending war, saw my wages cut over and over and over again and never really catch up. Well, I can sort of relate and, and the changes that are likely to come out of this pandemic are going to be more immediate and far-reaching. Again, I think it's likely we can make changes for the better here, which is why I'm talking to you at the moment anyway. Many of the students I'm supporting right now are working. Many are doing it to help make ends meet after their parents lost jobs. So add that into the stressors. Some have less than reliable internet service. Some are dealing with intense home life conditions. And an aspect of this quarantine that has sort of scared me to the bone is thinking about those who deal with domestic abuse and violence in the house. Anxiety is very high right now, and for good reason. There's no singular voice of guidance in our nation. Many governors have done a good job, but they're in triage mode. Many of our students are in triage mode right now. I've started to see a lot of drama erupting for no reason in people's lives. People are on edge, so let's cut them up cut them a break, let's cut them some slack, and let's not use this situation as a measure for what can be with regards to e-learning. Instead, let's set our sights on the future of possibility and the innovation that can change the world for the better. I'm not trying to sound like a huge proponent of e-learning. I don't know if I am or not. I'm pretty neutral in the bigger picture, but this is the situation we have been given, so let's make the best of it. Um, It's definitely true that a lot of good change can come out of bad situations. And sometimes, it seems historically, it takes a pretty big negative event to spur positive change. And honestly, it's my opinion, uh, or rather, if I was running the show, um, I would highly consider ending the school year early and asking teachers to start set up work groups to solve some of these e-learning shortfalls. Uh, Instead of doing the best with a bad situation, maybe we can just let go and turn uh, to creating a great situation that we can thrive in later. Instead of having a plethora of teachers recreating wheel after wheel, let's connect to the great ideas out there and build on their successes. I, I have been a part of some Zoom workshops that are starting to do this, but it hasn't been brought to scale yet. It's nowhere near being brought to scale, but I think that if we focus our efforts and resources correctly, we can. Um, So let me shift a bit and share some of my personal experiences with e-learning and then a change that I made in my structure that really helped out. So after a couple weeks uh, into e-learning, I reached out to my students asking about their experiences and what would work best for them. I did this through surveys and Zoom meetings. Um, Again, I just kind of focused on listening. I received a lot of valuable feedback. What was most interesting and profound is that 50% of the students said they wanted more structure and 50% said that they wanted less structure. All of them said that the, the lack of consistency from teacher to teacher was overwhelming. They were spending too much time in front of the screen just trying to switch between the different platforms teachers were using to deliver instruction or information. Having to constantly reorient for each class was adding to their anxiety and frying their brains, both in a physical way because of the screen time and, men- uh, and mentally because of the confusion. Building and or finding the best platform for e-learning I think is a major obstacle and I don't have an answer on that front, but I find the one that my school is working with to be 
pretty inadequate. They also shared that the type of work being assigned was a a lot of busy work. Some AP classes seemed to be giving them over two hours a day, likely because this included typical classwork and homework expectations from before, um, but that the they were saying the classwork being assigned wasn't typical and took a lot of time to just read the directions. Again, remember that the main motivation has been removed. Busy work might not work. Um, at a time that is asking for and ripe for student-directed learning, many of the teachers are doubling down on the step-by-step instructions. But for many kids, this type of work with detailed instructions was actually what they said they were needing. So deal with that, right? (laughs) Um, Here's how I decided to frame it. Nearly 100% of our students feel a complete loss of control in their worlds. Some students want to fill that void by just injecting that control into their lives through the schoolwork, so they want the teachers to give them that control. Many other students want to take control for themselves because they feel like they don't have it. They asked for more freedom, and of course, a lot of other students are exercising their control by not engaging at all because it's one of the few choices they have in the day. They're deciding not to open up their computers. One student shared that she's struggling to move from her, uh, as she put it, home brain into her school brain, that the physical process of leaving home each day and entering a different space allowed her to reframe her thinking and focus on school-related elements and to find a motivation that just isn't there at home. And she said she can't find that motivation to do schoolwork right now. Um, I think there's you know more at play there, but the comment gave me pause and something to reflect on. And maybe this is a really good time to reflect on that gigantic equity factor in education. Um, I've briefly mentioned it in previous podcasts and didn't really want to go into detail. And I think and I'm still not going to go into the detail that it requires because, man, is that a deep hole. Um, but this is a good time to at least, at least broach the subject. How can we fill the student voids, right, while addressing the fact that every student is in a unique situation? A lot of that's about equity. Um, it's hard to go on an interview in education and not have them ask you, what is your definition of equity? Um, and I think that it's almost become a little bit trivial and mechanical, but, um, at the heart of it for me is that every student is, is unique. And then you add in the historical inequities, uh, the oppression, uh, you know, things like racism, sexism over our history and how a lot of those barriers still exist. It just exacerbates the situation. So how do you confront that? How do you deal with that? Um, some of my response right now will kind of answer it a little bit. I mean, isn't this what equity is all about, this situation right now? I feel like a lot of the previous issues in our education system are punching us in the face at the moment. One can easily argue that equity is the biggest problem in our American educational system. Students born into certain neighborhoods can get access to the best money has to offer, and other students in less than fortunate areas get a fraction of that. On top of the other variables that come along with being born in a less funded area, and those things just exacerbate over time. Basically, every year that they get access to more, they just jump further and further ahead of the students who are being left behind. Not only do we fail and very much so to allow for student autonomy in which students can learn in the ways that work best for them in their unique ways, we also have unnecessary roadblocks in the structure that really end up hurting everyone. 
Um, it's my opinion that having the haves and have-nots hurts everyone. I was part of a recent Zoom conversation, as I mentioned, on the theme of equity in which our equity director made a profound statement regarding how equity is really about justice. She even went so far as to say that if she could change her title, it would become the equity director of justice. Our history is riddled with injustice, and we have not done nearly enough to remedy it. And some of those things are just, as I said, punching us in the face right now. We collectively suffer from an empathy shortage, in my opinion. But um, but anyway, so the equity director used the scenario about uh, that equity scenario. You've probably heard of it, seen it, heard of it. Uh, where the with the tall person, the short person, and the, and the medium person at the baseball game trying to see over the wall. Uh, I hope you know when the, the one I'm talking about, the where you give the short person two boxes and the medium person one box and then the tall person is zero boxes, then everyone can see over the fence. Equity is then about providing each person with the supports they need to be successful or succeed or achieve what they're trying to achieve. Justice, on the other hand, would be to change the fence into a chain link fence so that everyone can see through it. Now everyone can see, even without the supports. Justice are those systemic issues that get in the way of everyone succeeding. The fence is a metaphor for the system. It's kind of illuminating, right? Well, what if we just got rid of the whole darn fence in the first place? What does the fence become a metaphor then for then um so with inequity injustice and empathy in my mind and also of course a good dose of curiosity i started focusing on just listening and learning from the students i received my survey info and stories from our meetings and changed my e-learning approach as a result the results have been pretty beneficial to me and my students. I am a great deal less stressed out over everything and doing far less shifting between classes and students on my computer, and I'm able to have a, get, provide a little bit more individualized feedback. Uh, the first thing that I told students was that there would be far fewer messages, just one major communication a week from me, uh, and then with like the in-between feedback. Then I shared that we would be moving to a three-tiered system of options. Every two weeks, each student has the option to pick from, one, a super structured project I create for them with step-by-step -step instructions. I basically took units that I had already created in the past and added daily step-by-step -step instructions and expectations into the mix. They could also choose, number two, pick from a bunch of less structured options I provide. The options are on my teacher blog where I have uh, things like a photography sketchbook layout with over about, you know, over 50 project concepts slash ideas. Um, it's focused more on inspiration and learning through reverse engineering. Students would uh, pick one, um, like one of the options, a project that interests them, and then reverse engineer it to figure out how the artist made that work. Uh, and something that closely resembles the, the artist's examples or the examples in the tutorial or whatever I'm providing them, and but in their own way. It's a great example of learning through copying, which is something um, I'm a fan of and I've talked a little bit about and will expand on in the future. I'm currently creating some online classes that will touch on that. You can, by the way, you can find the photo sketchbook thing at uh, my teacher blog, which is Mr. spelled out like M-I-S-T-E-R, Mr. Sakura, 
S-Y-K-O-R-A dot blogspot. Um, just click on the photo sketchbook tab at the top. I got this idea years ago when working with a colleague who had a robust selection of options in an advanced drawing and painting class. Students were churning out these really impressive smaller sketchbook projects in between their larger projects. And they really seemed to be enjoying the sketchbook projects. I realized that they were getting to investigate and experiment with a wider variety of techniques uh, because of the, the sketchbooks and the smaller scale. Uh, and that they were learning more about the about their craft from just copying well-known artists. They could uh, then use that knowledge to explore more aspects of the creative process and other experiences. So I applied it to my photo classes. And I had a lot of this before the quarantine lockdown situation. Lastly, the third option students can choose from is a totally independent project option. With this, they can pretty much choose anything that interests them. I like when they choose something that relates to the class, but I'm not really holding them to that. They decide on something that re that they really want to investigate or work on, and then they tell me about their plan to do it. In some cases, it it does you know not relate very much to the content area, maybe slightly. But I'm more excited to see them investigating what matters to them. For instance, one of my intro to graphic design students is really interested in coding, and he found a number of hackathons that he wanted to enter, and one involved coding for a website, which is at least somewhat related to graphic design, uh, even though the aspects that he would be engaging in don't. And I said, absolutely go for it. Just keep me you know, tuned into what you're doing and ask me if I can help along the way. The truth is that, honestly, most subjects are connected at some point anyway. Um, I have a photo student who loves cars, taking tons of pictures of cars and then making advertisements out of them. Another student is really into nature, is exploring different forests around her neighborhood and documenting her research about the biodiversity. Um, maybe she's getting dual credit for a science class. I don't know, but I really don't care. She's outside exploring nature and enjoying the learning process. I asked her to maybe do some specific scientific drawings in her research to make it more art-related. So there you go. And a number are focusing their independent studies on a subject explicitly related to the class, and that's also awesome. That's just it, though. So what if the project they're doing is more related to coding than design or botany than art? My advice to all teachers, and this was echoed in my recent equity meeting by another teacher, is to let go. As Queen Elsa so famously said, let it go. I live with a four-year-old and two-year-old. This is an opportunity to connect with ourselves. Stop applying boundaries and expectations that don't exist anymore and that were outdated in the first place, even before COVID. That world is gone. Let it go. A number of students decided to investigate their coronavirus quarantine experience through art, and I think this is also a great option, but I wouldn't make it mandatory. I want students to do what makes them feel good right now, inspires them, leads to healing for them, and exercises their intellectual, emotional, imagination, and curiosity muscles. These topics of these topics of doing what makes you feel good, exploring your own health, and getting outside will be the focus of a really awesome e-learning workgroup discussion I'm going to share with you in a minute. Um, getting back to the three-tiered system for a second, though, that I'm using, 
If the students do choose like number three or even number two, they fill out a slightly longer form telling me what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, what resources they will be using, and what the timeline is. Um, I make this form pretty much follow my six steps for creativity. So they're like basically answering questions that relate to each of those. Um, something I'm going to be sharing in great detail in the online classes I'm creating right now. I'm trying not to make them have to jump through a bunch of hoops every day as well, but enough to make me have an idea that they're putting together plans. I'm just doing weekly check-ins. I just respond to their questions, which float in throughout the day, often later than earlier. Uh, as of now, about 25% are choosing option one. 25% are choosing option three, and about 50% are choosing option two. Students are finding strength in a lot of different areas. I have a student that excelled at one of the structured projects, and then I asked him to just keep exploring that concept and technique, and he was flattered by me saying that and excited to keep doing it. So he's just going to do that for the rest of the semester. One student is exploring uh, like aspects of family um, because of events that happened in her life uh, in a very... Uh, Hockney photography-esque style. It looks awesome. Um, I'm also finding out that many of my students who struggled on a computer are doing exceedingly well with paper and pencil or vice versa. I'm just letting go, dropping all my expectations and getting out of the way. I know I brought that up in the curiosity episode. Adults need to do a better job of getting out of the way. Some of the students are going with it really well. And uh, they aren't necessarily the students with A's prior to this event. You might also be wondering at the moment how many of my students are actually engaging in my classes. Um, well, uh, before I did this, the highest engagement I was seeing from a class was around 70% and the lowest was around 20%. The majority were hovering in the 40 to 50% area. Um, I saw about a 20% increase in each class after shifting my practice. So the 70% went up really high. Um, when the news came out, the schools would not be reopening for the year. There was a dip, um, especially among seniors. And it's recently started rising again. Even a few seniors came out of the woodwork. Um, and, you know, some students just felt, felt more comfortable, I think, sharing whatever they were doing with me. Um, so maybe it was the lure of getting credit for it. Uh, but are they really getting credit for anything right now? Um, again, we took away the main thing that motivates them to work. Great. What do we expect? And I'm not arguing that, the, and again, I'm not arguing against that decision at all. There might have been a better middle ground between full grades and no grades, but I understand why the state made the decision they made. My problem is with the fact that checkboxes and grades were previously the main motivators for students. I'm also finding that like, like every once in a while, a student might just like have had no engagement with me at all and just like send me an email like this week saying they're ready to start doing some work and were inspired by uh, the independent project option and this is what they want to do. Or I had, I put it out there that some students probably were sharing stuff on their Instagram. And if you're, you know, if I have a teacher account, why can't I follow you and see what you're doing and some students shared that they were doing work this whole time and they just weren't using the conventional ways of sharing it because it wasn't worth credit so why why go the extra lengths to do that so maybe checking in on the other ways that students are sharing the things that they're doing is a good way to stay in their lives um but again we're currently in a situation in which grades are pretty much completely gone 
and the ACT and SATs have gone with it for the moment. I really don't want to go back to that. Please, let's not go back to that. There are far superior ways to assess students and motivate them. The evidence is clear. So let me now share a really great experience with you. I was recently, as I mentioned, part of a a pretty awesome opportunity with uh, the Illinois Art Education Association. It was originally supposed to be a workshop regarding professional development and developing exemplar lessons for the state to use in PD sessions, and it ended up turning towards a huge e-learning focus, obviously, right? Uh, Teachers, professors, department chairs, etc., were working together, shared best practices, philosophy, and lessons that they were using during this time, and we broke into smaller groups and collectively worked to create an exemplar e-learning unit that could potentially be used uh, or shared with uh, the Illinois School Board of Education. We brainstormed and shared and ended up identifying three major connections. Um, They were socio-emotional learning, student choice, and process over product. Sound familiar? (laughs) After problem-solving formats and vehicles for such themes, we landed on the idea or concept of a choose-your-own-adventure book-type curriculum. Doesn't that sound awesome? A choose-your-own-adventure theme that we decided would focus on personal affirmations in which students would work through a journey in a narrative form, exploring self-help, self-health, and then ending in a public artwork of kind of like an activism type uh, public engagement meant to share their affirmations with the community. Um, I'm about to go into this in great deal in an imagination episode that I've been working on was really close to completion and I decided I wanted to do this e-learning one first. But um, narrative, stories, and exploration are fundamental to building authentic learning and developing the imagination. Like I said, I'll be going into that deeper, but just know that that's the case. So basically with this huge potential unit, um, students make choices, which include the five SEL competencies uh, from CASEL and overarching concept themes. Um, They assess weekly progress using the uh, cell competencies and choice assessment that we would create, which I'll share in a bit, Uh, use resources in their own world and community based on their individual needs to guide their decision making through the learning and narrative, and then connect to the outside community through a scavenger hunt and public art result. Uh, Public could also be digital, so shared through a digital community. An integral part of this lesson is that we don't know what students have available to them in the way of materials, so we can't really expect too much there. When we asked what essential learning was, uh, a lot of the answers we shared was self-awareness, self-management, responsible decision-making, setting goals, social awareness, relationship skills, creating artwork based off of positivity slash self-help slash affirmations, creating for yourself rather than a grade, and then sharing with the community. Um, A lot of this is in the five uh, SEL competencies, and uh, also you find a lot of this in the things I talk about. And a choose-your-own-adventure book was kind of the obvious answer. Um, I ended up giving it uh, the title, uh, A Quest of Self-Discovery to Save the Neighborhood. 
Um, I recently watched that new Disney flick about like the quest that was basically went straight to streaming on Disney Plus, and that's where my brain was. So the five uh, castle cell competencies, uh, which I'll share in a bit, helped frame our essential learning responses and provided the framework for the assessment rubric, which I then connected with my own creativity assessments. Again, I'll share that in a sec. Uh, by the way, if you're not familiar with Castle, the organization I've just mentioned a bunch of times, you should check them out. They are the socio-emotional leaders in the nation, really. Uh, CASEL stands for Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. I was lucky enough to attend their conference last year, um, and I'm hoping to present at future ones. Go to CASEL.org for more. First, um, let me sh before getting to the those competencies in the unit, I want to share some aspects of the unit concept. So the format, um, we discussed a variety of platforms that could be used and landed on either Google Slides or Canva. I'm not no, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Canva. Uh, check them out, canva.com. There's actually a lot of awesome free uh, digital art platforms that students could be using right now to make some digital art. Um, and it would basically, like, whatever format we choose, it would interact between multiple presentations utilizing links uh, and be web-based. And again, the theme we landed on was positive affirmations, uh, you know, think mindfulness, self-health. Basically, the students will build personal health and then spread that to the community through a public art project of some kind while navigating uh, the book, quote-unquote. One teacher was sharing a scavenger hunt theme, and so that also became part of the narrative. So students would complete these challenges, the challenges of the journey for self-discovery, and then translate that into a project to share with the world somehow. Where they end up will depend on how they choose. And then, so here are like some of the options we discussed. Uh, basically, students will make choices that lead to a more structured project, a path that provides a number of looser options or completely independent study in which the project forms from how they interpret and respond to the prompts. Again, sound familiar to what I was trying to do in my format with my students now. Uh, an important question we need, we need to answer is what are the boundaries for where the journey can take them? And then what is the most structured we want it to get? We would likely insert a number of uh, tutorials, likely through YouTube, maybe some of our own as well for students along the way, as well as like, kind of like, you know, think Easter eggs, uh, as well as asking them to find their own uh, tutorials and their own resources as part of the scavenger hunt and other aspects. The structured project would also have uh, maybe two options between doing a digital or physical project. Um, the problem with a physical project is allowing students to utilize the materials that they have access to at home. Um, I was thinking something like, you know, earth art uh, in the Andy Goldsworthy sphere or something like advertising where they make a post poster, hang it up in their community. And then the digital option would be based on access to free web-based programs, obviously. As far as uh, skills and techniques are concerned, since, since the process can get pretty open-ended, the focus would be on comprehension and execution of the creative process, as well as working through the five uh, cell competencies. The specific art really is secondary to this uh, curriculum journey. Students would assess the process rather than the results until the end when they can share with their peers and assess the impact of the overall project. 
Um, they will learn techniques through the tutorial options and then the ones they find on their own, but this would be slightly open-ended depending on which direction they take. It's interesting to think about how to allow flexibility between mediums while still providing enough guidance to make sure that the students gain domain skills. But again, this is kind of how I approach things a lot in my class anyway. Um, the focus is on exploration and problem solving. How did you solve that materials problem, right? And then with the process, which I've already shared a little bit about, the students would, uh, again, respond to different challenges on the quest. They would create a process map along the way of what they'd be making, fill out a personal health inventory, complete uh, various tutorials, maybe do a couple mood meters where they rate their mood from day to day, complete a scavenger hunt that bridges their home life, digital worlds, and their neighborhood. Uh, there are a lot of ways for interesting materials slash like process problem solving. We could include elements like um, lifelines to help complete the quest and the Easter eggs as I mentioned a little bit ago. Along the journey, they will respond to questions slash like self-assessments and in the cell creative process rubric that I'm going to share, but also include project-focused questions, questions like what makes you happy and how can you share it with others? It will uh, be about like challenging yourself to make multiple discoveries and take it as far as you wanted to take it or they want to take it. I could see some students spending an entire quarter or even semester on this one journey or of multiple discoveries, or some students just jumping right to the structured, easier routes, allowing students to find their own way, again, is crucial. What would that student who rushes through it rather be doing? How can we support their development in our desired content area? Likely by allowing them to connect with content they are more inspired by, right? Um, they, uh, this is actually what most curricular experiences again kind of look like in my classroom but without kind of the narrative of a choose your own adventure element which I really like and I'm excited about. Uh, the final assessments would include class critiques of course assessing the impact on themselves their families and the community we could ask them to take a happiness survey before they started the project and then at the end and of course the um, SEL slash creativity rubric uh, which I'm really close to sharing. Sorry, I should have probably shared it already. Um, just kind of like going. All of this is just theoretical at the moment, but I'm excited to take it to the next step of the process. We went through, so we went through the influence, the connections, and then the innovation stage. And now it's time to make a prototype. The next steps uh, focus on really answering what it physically looks like in the real world. Um, I will work with the team and maybe alone to create a draft outline with some visuals for critique, create a process map of the entire basic narrative, write a potential story that students can follow, or even better, uh, ask a more talented writer to do that part. Um, my wife is someone who comes to mind. Then we can finalize an outline, make aesthetic and platform choices, and jump into the work stage by actually making this experience come to fruition. So now let me fill in the blanks of the SEL competencies and rubric I mentioned in the last few minutes. So first of all, most of my assessments in class are self-assessments. And so I envision this being as such. It just so happened to line up very well with the CASEL 5 competencies. Um, it's also my opinion that the creative process is inherently linked with cell processes. 
typically my students give themselves um, a score between a one and a five in eight different sections across six different steps that relate to the six steps of the creative process. Um, a five means that the work is at an AP or college level. A student with a score of a fives across the board are ready for college and working at a professional level, really. And a three is the expectation for an intro level class. Students can give themselves scores like 3.7, for instance. This is considered a good score. A three is a good score for an intro level student, not if they're in an advanced level. The best part, uh, and that's actually kind of my whole point, is that they move through this rubric from intro into advanced, maybe to AP. Uh, so they track their growth. Growth mindset, right? Tracking growth. It's a very um, Danielson-related rating teachers kinds of stuff. The best part is that the really awesome part is that during critiques when students are defending and or making arguments as to why an artwork deserves a 4.2 versus a 4.4, um, it's their justifications and arguments that really get me excited. I mean, they will go into detail of the difference between a 4.4 and a 4.2, saying like, you know, this would have been a 4.4 if if their values were stronger, the concept is really great, you know, and they really, they get, it's really important, they call it the Sakura scale. Um, and they're like, what's the Sakura score? I love it. Um, so anyway, that's a bit of the frame that I use to approach this rubric. rubric. Um, so here it is. So basically, um, the five castle competencies are self-awareness, social awareness, self-management, um, relationship skills, and then decision-making. And it's basically like, you know, kind of like a step-by-step -step process. You start at self-awareness, then you move to social awareness, then self-management, and so on. Um, what I did was I put those into like a grid, and um, with each one of those, I connected it to a step of the creative process. So all of this is obviously like reflecting the sixth the sixth step in the, in the creative process, critique, right? Um, so with self-awareness, the question is like, how are you? Recognize your own physical, emotional, and mental state. Um, and then this would connect to influence, right, in the creative process. Uh, and I would ask them, what resources and ideas are you using to be inspired for this project? And they could use things uh, like a mood meter to do that. Um, but I'd also want them to connect on a physical and intellectual and emotional level and to kind of recognize those subtle differences. And they might all align, but they might be different as well. So I have like a separate section that actually within that box, it says physical, intellectual, emotional. The second box for, for the competencies sell is social awareness and that's like how does your situation relate to others and again I have like the boxes of how does it relate to to the individual maybe a friend how does it relate to the community and then how does it relate in the world and it's again trying to frame their experiences in this other context this wider context slowly spanning out from themselves at self-awareness and I used uh, the connect stage of the creative process in this rubric area uh, for process and asking what big picture commonalities are you finding in the situations of others and the resources you are using so we went from like self-awareness and influence to connect and social awareness. The next, the next stage is self-management um, from the cell competencies. And what goals do you have for addressing this awareness that you have, right? Like 
the management of it. Um, and I really connected this to social and personal. So how are you going to manage this in a personal way? But then again, the end result of this project is that you are connecting to the outside community. So how are you doing relating that to social experiences and, and beyond yourself? Uh, and again, this is like really where they're problem solving, right? Uh, and so it's the innovation stage. Uh, of the process of creativity. After making the above connections, what project goals are illuminated and how do they relate? So as they work through this like rubric, they'd be answering these big questions. Um, and then you end up at being able to predict consequences in the uh, five castle competencies. So this is like, how might your words, actions, and art pro project impact others? Like consider perspectives that vary from yours. So it's like thinking about like, I'm going to say this and how is what is likely going to be the result of that? That is a skill that so many adults and everybody are sorely lacking in. Um, I kind of relate this to the prototype stage of the creative process. Um, it's like, what steps do you have planned for the desired outcomes? You're drafting, you're thinking about these actions, you're putting it into the context of the real world, but not at a point yet of necessarily like fully developing it and, and throwing it into the world. You know, what is the timeline? Explain your basic structure and process. So this is like, they're trying to predict how their work is going to pan out, which, you know, connects really well to self-management. The next cell competency, again, is relationship skills. So how can your learning be enhanced by important relationships? Name those relationships. And I look at this, uh, I break this into, I break the work stage into two categories and actually do this in my own rubric, uh, my general rubric as well, that there's like the contribute part of working. So like the effort, the work that you give to contribute to others. So relationship skills is connecting to work through contribution. How are you connecting the project with others, students, family, community, right? How are you contributing, working with a group? And then the final stage of the SEL competencies is decision-making. What will you do? Why should we consider ethical responsibilities when considering art artist intention, right? Questions like that you know, the final reflection slash action. And again, I connect this to the work, work stage of creativity, but more uh, from an action slash reflection point of view. How can artist technique and choice of presentation create new perspectives? So how is your work going to impact the way other people feel, right? So um, that was my uh, cell rubric. Um, if you're not familiar, there's a thing called a mood meter. Uh, if you just Google it, it'll, it'll pop up. There's some really good videos on Vimeo about it. And it's like this meter of like basically rating the way that you're feeling from like high energy or, and then like feeling good, like energy being one line and pleasantness being another line and all the different uh, emotions people can feel. If at all, having these mood meters around your students regularly gets them to think about, um, uh, emotions that are more detailed and varied than just like happiness or sadness, right? So finally, with this episode, um, after talking about some of what I've done in my e-learning situation and thinking about what uh, work groups that I've been a part of have done, I want to shift gears to the bigger picture. Um, kind of what I was talking about at the beginning when I, when I mentioned the reforms or the educational renaissance that I think this point in history can result in. Like I said, there, there currently aren't any grades uh, 
and ACT type tests, um, they've been waived and for the time being. Why not just leave them and forget about them forever? The, the data and evidence on the impact of tests like the ACT are overwhelmingly against them. Um, if anything, they, they are their roadblocks to upward mobility from those students who are less fortunate in their equity cards. But let's take a look at time and the schedule, which I think are drastically being implicated in these times. One of the things about change is that it, it often has to be tied to other variables. Our schedule, for instance, is based on, our school schedule is based on most adults' work schedule, which is based on like the nine to five work schedule. It's not based on the biology of students, right? So those are things that are in, intertwined. And one of the reasons why we keep the arbitrary school schedule is because it works with people's work schedules. Um, it arbitrarily breaks content subjects up into time constraints, which don't relate to the subject matter very much. Every subject has the exact same amount of minutes, regardless of how much time makes sense for it. That's not equity. It's a quality, which isn't the point of these types of structures. Never has there been such a huge opportunity and even a demand to change all of those types of things at once. In one month, the priorities of the world shifted together. People are doing remote learning that doesn't correspond with the traditional work schedule. Or I mean, they're doing like remote working that doesn't correspond with their past traditional work schedule. Concepts of productivity and quality of time versus like quality or quantity are being questioned. Aspects of childcare, who has access and who doesn't a huge issue in American society, in my opinion, um, are these are being questioned in ways that suggest progressive changes. These are some of the systemic barriers, like the fence in that equity, equity analogy, that we need to question and likely remove entirely somehow. Never was there more of a demand for the different aspects and offices of the government, for instance, and the private sector to work together for innovative collaboration. So what about time? How many of you have checked the timestamps? I mentioned this before of when your students are turning things in. It's rarely before 11 a.m. and it's often overnight. That's what I'm experiencing. Uh, how much luck have you had with Zoom meeting attendance at 9 a.m.? How about at 2 p.m.? I get far more students with uh, the later I schedule the Zoom meeting. Look, now you already know how I feel about this. The factory model for a schedule and having students wake up before their biology suggests, uh, you know, you know how I feel about that. It's well overdue for a huge shift, right? It's likely that as a result of COVID-19 that we won't even be able to have too many students in the building at once anyway. And that e-learning is likely to continue into the fall, which allows us to find a balance between asynchronous learning and synchronous learning constraints. The quarantine has shifted paradigms in the ways that we perceive time. Let's use that. We don't need to structure everything around time. Time is a human's co human construct for the most part anyway. Quality is so much more important and context is so much more important. 
Are our digital platforms even there yet for really great and accessible e-learning for everyone? No, but we can get there. This is the freaking digital revolution after all. How long do you think it would really take? Look at how fast cell phones evolve. With the potential of like augmented reality and virtual reality, we can be looking at some really great digitally based educational experiences by August of 2021. We can create non-linear expectations of time in which we invest in the individual's needs, and this includes teachers. I'm getting to spend a lot more time with my family right now, which is making me a better teacher. I admit I haven't yet found a new balance to that time completely, but uh, COVID temper tantrums and a lot of other things are kind of making that harder at the moment. Let's at least try to commit to a new normal because the old normal wasn't working so well and definitely not for the majority of people. Class sizes are also likely to get a makeover. Can't have too many students in one room at a time anymore, right? Because they can't, you know, get, get give each other COVID. <laughs> Lost my train of thought there. Coupled with the difficulty of being able to respond to each individual across the digital divide, right? A Zoom meeting with 12 students is far more manageable and impactful than one with 30 students. So class size is something that we get to really consider changing, which has huge impacts. I'm thinking about how this changes our approach to IEPs and also instruction for everyone for the matter. Things will become far less about the teachers lecturing in front of students through all of their class periods. We are being forced to focus more on each student's individual needs, accessibility, and their autonomy. The classroom created an illusion of equity and fairness, right? It wasn't really there. Tests that are basically tools that work against class mobility have disappeared. I feel like I'm just going to go on a tangent and I've probably covered enough. What it all boils down to is that this is an opportunity. My fear is that the wrong people will be heard as we navigate and problem solve the future. We need to make sure the right people are at the forefront right now. There's a lot of things we can cover and think about and change for the better, for humanity, for learning, for everything. Hey teachers, let's innovate education. <laughs>